You are now listening to the June 3rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Fruit of the Spirit, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with the Fruit of the Spirit. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministry listeners. This is Terry Park with Fruit of the Spirit. We have been sharing the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit as listed in Galatians chapter 5. Today, we will address gentleness. The modern world has become harsh and evil. The worldly people seek to gain profits for themselves and nothing else. To do that, they continually show themselves off and they end up demonstrating how conceited they are. Their sights have become darkened and they live to satiate their pride and by doing so, feed their deep-seated sense of inferiority. They cannot see their insufficiency and fragility. When things don't go their way, they resort to hostility and violence, and yet they are not mindful of their shameful behaviors. Living among this type of worldly people, we may also be affected. Our spiritual life may become blinded by such conceited behaviors, so that we fail to see clearly the grace of God. That is why, as Christians, we need to separate ourselves from the worldly people and must have nothing to do with their prideful way of life. The eighth characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. Gentleness is the opposite of conceitedness. Conceptually, gentleness is close to humbleness. Through humbleness, a Christian may display gentleness that comes from the Holy Spirit. In our daily lives, we may encounter conflicts and difficulties in our relationships with others. When these things happen, we become frustrated. Though there may be difference in the severity, we could express anger or even show fury in reaction to the things that are getting in the way. In general, the level of anger is usually proportional to the level of one's insecurity. When we feel less secure and feel the situation is not what we thought it should be, we become more upset. Such insecurity is usually formed when our heart does not want to accept the reality that things are not as we wish. In contrast, our hearts will feel secure and find peace when we understand ourselves and acknowledge the situations we face and accept them as they are. Then we find security and peace. Additionally, we will be able to live more courageously in the Lord. We will be able to serve others' needs with gentleness and softness. Numbers chapter 12 verse 3 tells something about Moses. It tells us how gentle Moses was. The scripture reads, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Moses' life was not easy. It took 80 years of God to prepare Moses to become the leader of God's people. During this time, there were many ups and downs in his life. Moses became humble and gentle through all the difficult situations in his life. He came to learn who he really was and prepared himself to accept the situations that were yet to come in his life. Eventually, 
He became the man whom God approved to be very humble and gentle, more than anyone on the face of the earth. Jesus is the perfect example of gentleness. He performed many signs and wonders, even healing many sick people. Yet, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 16, Jesus warned those around him not to tell who he was. It demonstrates his gentleness so well. Also, Jesus had gentleness and humbleness in his actions just as had been prophesied. In Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4, it reads, A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. As we see how Jesus courageously fulfilled God's will, without complaining, we can learn the true meaning of gentleness. We see how gentleness represents the power to perform God's will with courage, not with frailty. The world teaches us that we can show our power when we become strong. But we who are Christians, who look up to Jesus, should confront the sin-filled world with gentleness and humbleness just as Jesus did. The Bible tells us that we must trust God who will work through our gentleness as we serve our neighbors. In the end, gentleness is a characteristic that only those who believe in God can show. There are a few things we must keep in mind if gentleness is to be revealed within us. The first is to remember that we are creations who must obey the God who made us. The second is to keep in our hearts that we are sinners before God and we cannot do any of God's good works apart from Him. The third is to keep in our hearts that God created us with a specific purpose and that is to give glory to Him. He is training us for that purpose and He also gives us strength to fulfill that purpose. I'm sure you remember that Moses spent the first 40 years of his life in the palace of Pharaoh and then the next 40 years leading God's people in the wilderness. After 80 years of being prepared by God, Moses was approved by God to be the most humble man with gentleness. Therefore, because God is our creator, we are to live a life that celebrates his glory. We must trust, obey, and rely on God completely who is preparing us to fulfill His purpose in our lives. It is my prayer that the Holy Spirit will give us gentleness, which will work through us by the gentleness of Jesus Christ in a sin-filled and wounded world. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the gospel, the Lord of faith, and the one who completes the world. Goodbye!
is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Cavalry Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is the right time and the right place. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Let's look at Acts chapter 18. We're going to start with verse 1. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. At this time, Corinth had a population of about 200,000 people. It was kind of like the capital of a province, bigger than a state, you know, just a, a great big area. And it was called the Eye of the World. Uh, the Eye of Asia, rather, is what they called it. And most of the population were pretty well educated. So it, You know, it was a pretty great city to be in, but it was the center of the worship of the goddess Aphrodite. And along with that came some pretty gross stuff. Now look at verses two and three. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. Pontus was an area bordering the Black Sea. And he had recently come from Italy, remember that, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, that's the Roman emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and went to see them. So it goes on to say, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Here's some background that's going to help us understand this. It was required that every rabbi or theological student learn a trade, markable trade, by which they could support themselves or their family. And so Paul's trade was uh, tent making. And actually, a tent maker's work included more than cutting patterns and making tents, okay, sewing together tents. It also involved a whole lot of leather work. So besides the typical things that you would think, articles of leather, you know, that a person might make, sandals and things, know this, every single piece of armor that a Roman soldier needed had some component of leather in it. 
And so you had a helmet, you had the breastplate, that's all, all needs leather. You have the belt, you have the shoes, those big heavy sandals, and you have the sword sheath, all leather, right? And so this, Paul would have worked on this kind of stuff. So this gives us a little more insight when he says, put on the full armor of God, right? And we always say, well, he was looking at Roman soldiers when he wrote that. I agree. But probably he also knows, I know how his armor is made because I made it. Put on the full armor of God. That helmet, you put that helmet of salvation, you put that breastplate of righteousness on, you put that belt of truth on, and you put the shoes of the gospel, and you take the sword of the spirit, and you move forward in the armor of God. So I think, you know, that gives me a little more insight as to how Paul would have had that in him. He was making, at times, uh, I'm sure, equipment for soldiers. Now, let me tell you something about Aquila and Priscilla. He found a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Another form of her name is Prisca in the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, Priscilla's name is usually placed before her husband's. So here, when we see Aquila and Priscilla, this is unusual. Usually, over and over and over, it's Priscilla and Aquila. That's very unusual in the Roman world. It just wasn't done that a woman's name is before her husband's. Why? Well, probably because uh, she had Roman citizenship. And remember what a big deal that was. So she was a Roman citizen and he was not. And we even think that he might have been a freedman. That means a slave who had been set free. So there was, you know, people recognize that too. Maybe Priscilla's gift of teaching was much better than Aquila's. And she was recognized as being a leader. And I mean, it was just like when you think of the couple. There are couples I know, and we think of the woman first because she's just more (laughs) gregarious. She's more out there, right? And others where, you know, it's a guy, we say, you know, Joe and Sally, or rather than Sally and Joe, you know, who knows? But I I think truly it was probably because she was gifted in teaching and had a Roman citizenship. Ministering together, this husband and wife team became a very prominent couple in the New Testament. So as you were to read through the New Testament, you can hear them mentioned a lot. They went with Paul to Ephesus. They helped Apollos. We're going to talk about him in a couple of weeks. They helped Apollos understand the gospel better. So they were teachers. They went back to Rome, we'll find out. They were with Paul when he wrote 1 Corinthians, which would be the letter back to this church in Corinth, where he is right now. And Timothy, even Pastor Timothy, was told to salute them, give them honor when he saw them. Have you considered teaming up with your husband or wife, with your spouse, to serve the Lord? Ever considered doing that? At verse 2, let's go back to verse 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native Pontus, recently come from Italy. Okay, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Why did they recently come from Italy? Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So on January 24th, AD 49, the Roman emperor Claudius issued an edict 
for all the Jews to leave Rome. The Roman historian Suetonius investigated what happened. And this is what he writes. Because the Jews were indulging in the constant riots at the instigation of Crestus, he, the Emperor Claudius, banished them from Rome. Because the Jews were indulging in the constant riots at the instigation of Crestus, he banished them from Rome. Oh, this is amazing. Most scholars surmise that what happened was this historian, Suetonius, misheard the name Christus for Crestus. Christus is a name for Christ in Latin. And so he believed the writing was because of followers of someone named Crestus. But the riots were actually because of someone named Christus, who is Jesus Christ, right? So the reason for the riots is, are you following me for what I'm saying here? Okay, okay. So the reasons for the riot is simple. The angry, unbelieving Jews who weren't able to answer Christian arguments, they couldn't refute Christian arguments, were rioting against the gospel because so many Jews were turning to Christus, to Jesus, and were being saved. They started rioting, not the Christians, but the unbelieving Jews. And the government didn't understand what was going on. They just saw a Jewish thing, Jewish thing going on. What, what are these names they're talking about? So on January 24, 8049, the emperor Claudius uh, issued this edict for all the Jews to leave. So that's what this is all about when it says they had recently come from Italy because there had been a command to leave Rome. The command happened because Christos was so controversial. Praise the Lord. The message of Christ was making such an impact on a huge city like Rome. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. Finally, Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia. They're Paul's team. I love working together with people. When you get a team, maybe a brother or a sister, somebody that you just work well together, and when you're separated and you're all alone and he's stepping into this crazy city and meeting new people and starting his own business and all and trying to teach, probably the only day he had a whole day to teach was Shabbat, the Sabbath. The other six days, they all worked, and maybe he taught in the evenings. But finally, Silas and Timothy show up, and he's so happy to see them. And uh, his first worry was, what has happened to the church in Thessalonica? Because that's the church he left, and he was only able to be there about three weeks. I mean, he started, he planted the church, and was only able to be there three weeks. How is that church doing? How they're faring? And they told him the church was doing well, and it gave Paul, great comfort. You know, let me tell you how encouraging that was to Paul. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, Paul says, I'm reading a paraphrase. But now that Timothy is back, bringing this terrific report, oh, Paul writes back to the Thessalonican church, and he tells them how happy he was to hear from Timothy and to hear about them. 
But now that Timothy is back, bringing this terrific report on your faith and love, I feel a lot better. It's especially gratifying to know that you continue to think well of us and that you want to see us as much as we want to see you. In the middle of our trouble and hard times here, just knowing how you're doing keeps us going. Knowing that your faith is alive keeps us alive. Isn't that cool? It's how important these people, you know, I just have to say, Paul had the heart of a pastor. He loved his people. Now, Paul had a lot of churches that he started. There was only one church in Ephesus that he really stayed a long time. But he had all these children, so to speak, churches that he had planted. But he had a pastoral heart for all of them. That's why we we have some of these letters preserved. The letter of Colossians, he's writing to the church. He's starting Colossae. Uh, the letter to Romans, the letter to Philippians, the church he started in Philippians. Remember where he was beat up and put in jail and the Lord opened the door and through that earthquake. And, and we've got, you know, all these different letters that he's writing because he loves these churches. Pastors need to love their church and not just be hired hands. And unfortunately, it's not good to rag and to make universal statements, so I don't want to do that. But unfortunately, that isn't necessarily taught in seminaries. How do you teach someone to love people? Well, you basically need some experience maybe before you're at a seminary and ordained, and you just have to have a calling to love God's people. And Paul would die for them. Silas and Timothy also brought Paul an offering from the churches of Macedonia. For some reason, Paul refused to take any money from the Corinthian believers. Here he is, you know, he's sharing the gospel there. There's going to be a big church that is going to grow in Corinth, and he refused to take any money. He makes a big deal about it. He later wrote to them, he's writing a letter to the Corinthians, In 2 Corinthians, he writes, Not once during the time I lived among you did anyone have to lift a finger to help me out. My needs were always supplied by the Christians from Macedonia. I was careful never to be a burden to you, and I never will be. You can count on that. Now, part of the reason I think why Paul was careful to do that because there was an accusation about him that he was just in it for the money. It's like, Oh, good grief, right? Here's this guy who's beaten up all the time for the gospel. He's just in it for the money. But he's saying, look, I don't want that to even be an issue. So he says, I refuse to let you lift a finger to help me. I took care of myself and the churches of Macedonia. uh, They also helped me. So the offering that Silas and Timothy gathered for Paul was enough to free him up to be able to to be occupied, verse 5, it says, to be occupied with the word and to be testifying to the Jews that Christ was alive. He was able to give himself full time, entirely. Okay, let's look at verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments, at verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Well, there's nothing unusual with that, right? That's what he always do. Jews first, then the Greeks, then the Gentiles. 
And when Silas and Timothy arrived, they gave him the offering and all. Verse 6, and when they, that's the Jews in the synagogues, reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent, for from now on I will go to the Gentiles. He shook out his clothes in effect saying, I'm done with you. I am done with you. You say, how could he say that? He said it, I am done with you. What he did was very symbolic and kind of offensive. Shaking off the crumbs. Crumbs go to the dogs. I'm done with you. From now on, I'm going where? To the Gentiles. There should be a hinge right here in the book of Acts. Because at this point in the book of Acts, Paul's emphasis moves from the Jews, sharing the gospel with the Jews first, to moving now to sharing the gospel, the Jews first, to sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. So this is a hinge in the book, completely different track now that he's going to go on. His method of evangelism is going to be to reach Gentiles, to go after non-Jews. In Corinth, he started this outreach to the Gentiles. And we're going to see throughout the book of Acts that it's very successful. And often the Jews are the biggest problems because they will not accept the Messiah, and yet they can't refute the arguments. See, that's, that's the problem, you know. Verse 7, And he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. <laughs> Titius Justus, his name uh, reveals that he was Roman, okay? Titius Justus, uh, he was a worshiper of God. He was one of those God-fearers. You know, he was a Gentile who attended the, the synagogue but didn't convert to Judaism. Well, he accepted the Lord, and uh, when Paul was booted out of the synagogue, Titius Justus says, oh, why don't you come to my house? And it wasn't like on the other side of town. Why don't you come to my house right next door? Isn't that just sweet? I mean, that is sweet. Can you picture it? Jews walking out of the synagogue doors right into Titius Justice's house. <laughs> I just think it's sweet. Along came a second believer, verse 8, Crispus, the ruler, or you call him the president of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. So who is Crispus? What's the ruler of the synagogue? Well, the ruler of the synagogue is somebody who was in charge of the building and in charge of the services. So Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, the guy who was in charge of the building and in charge of the services, he gets converted and he leaves and he believes in the Lord. His entire household believes in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul, it says, believed and were baptized. Crispus, you know, you can imagine that was just, that was a seismic in the Jewish community. It shook it. I mean, what? Our leader Crispus? He believes in Jesus? Well, we better listen to him 
because we respect him so much. We've watched this man for years. He's taken care of us for years. So it's significant how God takes these certain people, they're saved at a very important time, and because of their salvation, there's this ripple effect over other people. And that one salvation was a keystone. God used Titius justice when he opened up his door. Look at verse 12. Got some cool stuff here. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. It says they rushed on Paul, the Greek kind of shows. They rushed on Paul. They, they made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Now, was Paul terrified by this? Somebody tell me. Why? Yeah, you guys remember, because Jesus had said, don't worry, Paul, I'm with you. I've got a lot of people of mine in this city. So Paul must have, I mean, you know, of course, probably his blood pressure went up a little bit, but he was like, okay, Lord, you're in charge of this. Secular sources tell us the kind of man Gallio was. I'm glad that, you know, I read these names, and guys, I have to be, I have to be, I'm always frank, but let me just tell you, I never really paid attention to Gallio. And then I thought, well, I want to know more about this guy because of what he's going to end up doing. So this is what I found out. His father, Seneca the Elder, if any of you are in you know, into Roman history, you know, Seneca the Elder was a famous Roman public speaker. He had two other brothers, and one of them was Seneca the Younger, a very famous Stoic philosopher. He was a statesman. He was an orator. And interestingly, he tutored Nero when Nero was very young. Don't blame him for that. Nero was crazy. No amount of tutoring could tutor him out of that. And Gallio served as proconsul of Achaia, this region, for only two years. All right? Keep that in mind. From only two years. Listen to what his brother said about him. I'm telling you, he was a great guy. Listen. His brother said, no mortal is so pleasant to any one person as Gallio is to everyone. And so... Gallio set a precedent that protected the early church in its infancy while it's really weak and very small from being stamped out by persecution. Thank God. Here is the right man at the right place. The right person at the right place can save your life. Amen. And so God in his providence. Amen. God in his providence had Gallio, this Greek guy that, you know, we talked about, had him in place, but he was only there for a two-year window of time. What if, you know, all the what ifs, what if Paul went there instead of there? What if Paul stayed here a little longer and went a different road? What if, what if, what if? But in God's providence, it all came together, and we have a church because this pagan guy, proconsul, he said, I don't see any difference. This is you guys' problem. Words and names, your own law. Well, what words? Probably Paul is talking about prophecies. 
and you know the, the words and the preaching that he's doing, the preaching, his words. Names, we already know what the names are, right? Calling Jesus Christos, calling Messiah, right? Those are names. And your own law, of course, that was the Jews believing that Paul was doing away with the old covenant, which he was, and establishing a new covenant, which Jesus already had done. And the Bible prophesied the old covenant would fade, it would vanish and pass away. And God would establish a new covenant and write that in our hearts. And the new covenant Jesus established at his death and resurrection. So Gallio said, this is not my decision. I refuse to rule on it because you Jews have a fight. See, so Christians and Jews, you Jews can fight it out yourselves. And then he forcefully dismissed the case. Look at verse 16. And he drove them from the tribunal. Verse 17, and now the Gentiles, verse 17, talked about, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. <laughs> but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. He didn't say, oh, stop it, stop this, stop this. He just beat him up. It's okay with me. I, I, I don't want to hear any of this stuff. I already said it. None of my business. I'm done with it. Now, remember what we said about Sosthenes, right? Uh, one of Paul's great accusers, but later in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, he is, Paul mentions him at the very top of his letter saying that, that here's Paul I'm writing with Sosthenes, our brother. So he writes to the Corinthians and he mentions that Sosthenes got saved. So even through all of this mess, you know, Sosthenes is saved. The gospel of God comes to the San Francisco of the world at that time. Paul goes weak, fearful, lacking confidence, but he comes preaching the gospel. And he says, I was determined to know among you nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was talking to you about Jesus, what Jesus came to do, how Jesus will forgive your sins Jesus will give you a new life. And he mentions in Corinthians at one point, he mentions different kinds of sins. And he says, some of you were this. Some of you were this before you were saved. Others of you were doing this before you were saved. But you were washed. You were cleansed. You were renewed by the Holy Spirit. See, there's going to be a salvation in this city. God has many people in this city. And Paul moves forward. Amen? God opens the door for him. And it makes me think about the scripture in Romans 5, where it says, where sin abounded, grace did much more about. Where sin increased, grace much more increased. And here is a city that, man, needs God's grace. And so God's man is there. God's men are there. This couple is there, and we're going to see God working big time through the Corinthian church. Lots of lessons there. But I want you to walk away. Well, I gave you several things. Be encouraged realizing that as you walk ahead, God has the right thing planned for you. 
something you could never figure out. God has the right person, the right thing at the right time to keep you going, all right? You can trust God for that. It's right here in our New Testament. Every time I come to church, I'm just going to remember, I'm here. The church wasn't stamped out because God had the right man at the right place at the right time. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to be here and to have you speaking to us. And really, it's the right time, the right place, because you've given us all something to chew on, to think about, all something to take home. So we ask that even though it's been kind of a shotgun, so many things to look at, there are things that you want to sink deep in our hearts. And so don't let those things fall away. Bless us this week. Maybe blessing to others and maybe we'll be that right person, the right time, the right place for someone. We want to be available for that as well in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.
Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602-866-8999. That's 602-866-8999. following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. As they do also the rest of of the scriptures. They take the hard parts, twist those, but they also do the rest. And notice what he says, to their own destruction. These are not believers. Peter's saying they're not believers. Now believers are being led astray, as we're going to see, and we're going to be told to watch out and be on guard because we could be led astray. It's in the church, but these guys are not believers. They are those who are going to be eternally destroyed. It is an extremely serious, serious thing to twist the Word of God and to bring a different gospel or to be a false teacher. We see the horrible realities of what God has said will happen to those who do such. Look back in chapter 2. Back to chapter 2. Verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you. They'll do business with you. They're bad business. Remember we saw that? They'll exploit you with false words or molded words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. They're on their way to judgment. God doesn't miss it. Just like he didn't miss the angels and those in Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't miss it. He didn't miss them. Look down in verse 9 of chapter 2. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring self-willed. What about verse 12? But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Don't worry about it. Don't you go out and try to fight it. You just stay away from it. God's going to take care of it. Don't be a false teacher hunter. Stay away from it. We're to stay away and be on guard. God's going to take care of them. Look at verse 17. These are springs without water, mist driven by a storm, for whom black darkness has been reserved. Peter has thoroughly warned us concerning false teachers who will distort the word ultimately to their own destruction. We've been warned. They will appear to be following Jesus. They will arise among you. And ultimately, in some way or another, they will give license to sin. 
in a very subtle way in which you think you're following Jesus. They've turned the grace of God into licentiousness. And therefore, notice our passage says we are to be on guard. We are commanded at this point because we know something beforehand. Verse 17, back in chapter 3. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. This is to believers. This is to beloved Peter's not just saying, it's the last time I'm going to see you, I love you so much, and I will miss you for a long time, and we'll see each other in heaven. He's not saying that. He's saying what's most important. He's a faithful shepherd. He says, you therefore, knowing this beforehand. Knowing what? That there will be those who distort the Word of God, especially the passages that are difficult, as they do the rest of the Scriptures. There's going to be those, just like he has described, knowing this beforehand, Beloved, says you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. And then we have a command. Be on your guard. This is God commanding us, and if we don't obey God, we'll always suffer. You know, if you disobey God, you will suffer. We see examples of that throughout Scripture where Israel didn't obey God and take out all the inhabitants of the land, and they were thorns in their side, right? We see example of Solomon not obeying God in terms of his wives and horses, and we see what happened. The kingdom was divided, right? Horrible consequences. Be on your guard. It speaks of the activity of a watchman. It says, and it's in a continual sense, be continually, habitually guarding or on your guard. It's the beloved. It's believers. It's to believers. Those who are loved by Christ and love one another. Beloved. He has warned us that which is going to come into the church, and since we know it beforehand, continually, habitually be guarding. Now, this is to the whole body of Christ here in Second Peter, by the way. The Apostle Paul in Acts actually spoke to the elders concerning this. Turn to Acts chapter 20. Now, being on your guard doesn't mean you're a finger pointer. Being on your guard means you're watching out, you're addressing the Word of God, you're examining to see if it is so, you're testing those things, you're understanding the Word, right? You recognize there will be those who twist it, so you're aware and you're on your guard. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul shares his last words to the Ephesian elders there in Miletus. He says, Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise. That's pretty scary. People will arise, right? Among your own selves. And note he says here, speaking twisted things, perverted things. They're twisting the word of God, right? To draw away disciples after them. They want you to follow them, right? Therefore, be on your alert, remembering night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Now, Paul was warning the elders in that passage, but we have been warned here and know beforehand, knowing this beforehand. There's going to be those who twist the word of God, lessen the reality of sin. They're going to turn God's grace subtly into a license to sin or be fleshly, twisting God's word to cause you to follow after your desires rather than God's will, to give you a pass, to think you're following Jesus. Not tell you right now, 
What I've seen where people have bought into twisted doctrine and things, they actually think they're following Jesus. They actually think they're doing the right thing. They have been deceived. Back in our passage, verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. And here's the warning. Lest, being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. Here's the warning. Being carried away, it's an impassive voice. It speaks of being taken along. Think of like a raft that goes into the river. It's carried away by the current. Being carried away by the air of unprincipled, the term unprincipled is that same cognate of licentious or lawless, of licentious or lawless men. The air of these people. Be on your guard lest you get carried away. The first step is being carried away by these things. You see it happen emotionally or intellectually where God's word is subtly twisted, but it feeds your flesh and it draws you away. It carries you away. Be on guard. That doesn't happen. Guard over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And there's a consequence if you do get carried away. He says here, you fall from your own steadfastness. The term fall here is an interesting word. It can certainly speak of falling away and falling out of something. But it also was used as a nautical term. We see it in the book of Acts, which speaks of a ship that drifts off course, driven into the rocks and driven aground. Be in your guard, lest your walk with Jesus is drawn away and driven into the rocks. And it's destroyed, basically. No, you'll still be saved if you're truly saved. But your walk in that moment will be shipwrecked. And how it's done is through bad guys who twist the word of God to cater to your desires. All in the context of falling, quote unquote, Jesus. That you would fall from your own steadfastness. Interesting, your own steadfastness. You see, in Jesus Christ, we are all individually firm in a position of stability. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we are stable. When we walk with Jesus Christ, we are stable because of Christ. But if we are carried away passively by our own desires, as we entertain error, our relationship with Jesus is shipwrecked, and we are no longer stable or steadfast. And that is happening throughout the church. Many will follow their desires, right? Many. Folks, we are being warned. These are Peter's last words. He considers it very important, inspired by the Spirit of God. And he is sharing it that we can bring it to mind after he's departed and he is gone now. We have it in the word. There is the very real possibility for a believer to shipwreck their faith for a time. That's what he's saying. It's possible. And maybe some of you have had your faith shipwrecked. You have bought into things that are not biblical that fed your desires. You got carried away by it. You need the word of God placed over those things that you were carried away by that error to show that error. You need to confess it. Lord God, I allowed myself to be carried away by error, and I confess it. And God will forgive you, and he will restore you, and you will be set up firm and movable in the Lord. There's the very real possibility we could be carried away. And if you have, confess, and the Lord will forgive you. And you will be restored, because he's a good God. He's a good God. And folks, we see this throughout our modern day 
evangelical, seeker-sensitive churches that twist the word under the guise of evangelism. They twist the doctrine of the church from Scripture under the guise of evangelism. Get everybody in church to save them, and then they don't share the word of God because you might offend those who aren't saved. That's not right. That's twisting the word of God. And guess what? The sheep are not fed then. If you've fallen into that, even thinking it was right, examine the word of God, and if it exposes error, then confess and turn away from it. Be on your guard. Don't let it happen. Don't be shipwrecked. And the key to understanding whether you have been or whether you will be is are you listening to twisted truth, Scripture being twisted, error from those who are twisting it for their own desire. Take the Word of God and put it over it and do the right thing. Beloved, don't let this happen to you. Obey the command. And I'm not talking about false teacher hunting. Just examining the Word of God. Just examining and being built up in it. Being built up. Being matured so that you will be able to discern good and evil. Not being tossed to and fro. Being built up that you would be discerning. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. Lest being carried away by the air of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. You could just picture and see that happening, right? Guard your hearts. All of us are commanded to do so. Every single one. Take heed, you who stand, lest you fall. You know, whenever somebody says to me, I'd never do that. We've had people come here and say to Bob and I, we're never going to leave that church. And I go, oh, never say never. Trust the Lord. If you think you stand, you might fall. Folks, we are all commanded, we are all commanded to be on guard. Be on guard. Well, notice there's the second and the last final command, which is a corollary to this. Verse 18 in chapter 3, and it's wonderful. It's the key of this book. It's the center of it. But, in a sense, rather than being taken astray and pulled away by your own desires and shipwrecked, Instead of that, this is what we are to do. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Instead of falling, not being on guard, not heeding the warnings, we are to grow. The term grow means grow. Right? We understand what the term grow means. You think of a plant growing. It's just growth, right? You think of a child growing, right? Physically speaking. It speaks of growth. But what are we to grow in? In the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, it's all about Jesus. It's all about our relationship with Jesus. It's not about theology. It's not about whatever it might be. It's about Jesus. Jesus is his human name, and you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The term Jesus, Yahshua, means the Lord is salvation. The term Christ spoke of the anointed one, the Messiah King, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who would reign forever, but first would have to suffer before the glories to follow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. You see, Jesus is Lord. And we must believe that he is Lord. He is the Lord of the heavens and the earth. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, we saw the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Chapter 2, verse 20, the bad guys had known of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 2, we are to remember the commandment of our Lord and Savior. And here we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. He's our Lord. He's our Lord. We're not God, He is. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. To be saved, you need to acknowledge Him as Lord. Romans 10.9, you need to realize in your heart, and it obviously will come out with your mouth. But not only must we believe that He is Lord, we must believe He's Savior. And He is the Savior of the world. You see, God has made it clear that we are all sinful. And that He will punish sinners eternally. The wages of sin is death, but yet He sent His Son to die for our sins. He took on human flesh. He went to the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. And whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call upon Jesus. He is the only Savior. He is indeed the Savior of the world. He will save you from your sins. And we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's our Lord and He's our Savior. Notice we're to grow in the grace. That's his unmerited favor. That's the favor that he bestows upon us. And he bestowed it initially when he came. For the grace of God has come, bringing salvation to all men. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is all his favor upon us, and we believe in him, we're saved. The Apostle Paul speaks of the grace of the Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. Grace is summed up in the work and the person of Jesus Christ, all from him and nothing from us. So how do we grow in the grace of God right now that we're already saved? Folks, we function by His grace. It's all by His grace. Everything we do is by His grace. Everything. We're to function by it. Everything from God, nothing from us. Indeed, Peter would share in his first letter that even our spiritual gifting as we employ are manifestations of the manifold grace of God. What did the Lord Jesus share concerning weaknesses and grace to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. He said, my grace is sufficient. You see, when we rely on the Lord, He enables us to do what He calls us to do. It's by His grace. It's not because of us. It's His favor upon us. Chapter 1 of the same letter, he said that grace would be multiplied. May grace and peace be multiplied. The Christian life is about functioning in the grace of God. Everything from Him, nothing from us. Remember, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We're not adequate to consider anything that's coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. We are to grow in that. Instead of being taken captive and led down the stream by our own desires and shipwrecked on the rocks, we are to becoming more and more growing in our trust of Jesus. And how do we do that? Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word. We rely on Him. We allow His Word to work in our hearts. We renew our minds. And not only are we to grow in His grace, we're to grow in the knowledge of our Lord, the epinosis, the fuller or true knowledge. It's relational knowledge. I gave this example before. We can know someone but not know them. I know, as I mentioned before, the present, but I don't know Him. I don't have a relationship with Him. And we have, because of the forgiveness of sins, a relationship with the living God. We can know Him. And we are to grow in the grace and knowledge. Those are the two things. Abiding and trusting Him more, learning more about Him. Abiding and trusting Him more, knowing more about Him. That's what we're to be doing as believers as we wait for Christ to come, as He saves us. Let me share some passages on how we grow. 
First Thessalonians chapter 2, let's turn there for a second and we'll finish up. You see, growth just doesn't come through wanting to grow. Growth comes through a means, a means. And guess what that means is the means that these bad guys are trying to mess with. That's why Peter is saying, guard yourself. That's why. The means we grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus and the knowledge of him is through the word of God. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, notice this, which also performs its work in you who believe. Another passage, 1 Peter chapter 2. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And this will give you the reason why so many people don't grow, even if they're in the word, by the way. Some people are in the word all the time. They're in good churches all the time. They're never growing. Why? 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, putting aside, here you go, you've got to put aside sin or you're not going to grow. Putting aside all malice and all guile, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn bays, 1 Peter 2, verse 1, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, if you're truly saved. You're not going to grow if you're not saved. It's through the Word of God. And we saw lastly, turn back to Second Peter and go to chapter 1. This is what he shared in the beginning. It's through the Word of God that we grow in the grace of our Lord. We become more and more dependent on Jesus. We become more and more knowledgeable of Him in a real relationship. Not head knowledge, but a real relationship. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in what the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. God uses his word to grow us in our relationship with him. If you are willing to confess sin, to set it aside, you will grow if you're in his word. If you're in this word, you will grow. And we are commanded, actually, to grow in the grace and knowledge. We're commanded to be on guard from those threats which will endanger our walk with Jesus. And we are commanded to grow. So guard and grow. Peter's last words. Guard and grow. Guard and grow. Guard against threats to the word of God and your walk with Jesus. And through the word of God, grow in your relationship with Jesus. And lastly, notice Peter wants the Lord to get all the glory. End of verse 18. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. May Christ be glorified now and unto the day of eternity. May he be glorified. And how he's glorified is when we abide in him, we trust in him, we rely on him, we grow in the grace and knowledge of him, we obey him. Be on guard. And grow. Let me ask you this. Are you on guard? Are you obeying the command? Have you fallen? Confess. God will forgive you. Be on guard. And grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord.
Let us worship and bow down before the Lord most holy, before the King of glory. Come and lay your burdens down before the friend who's faithful, before the one who's able, for he
we are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.